I'm Emily Best, co-founder and CEO of Seed and Spark. Don't go anywhere because we're going to talk mission and values. Welcome to Mission and Values, a backstage capital podcast about remarkable startup cultures led by underrepresented founders. I'm your host, Brian Landers. My guest today is Emily Best, the co-founder and CEO of Seed and Spark. For full disclosure, Backstage Capital is an investor in Seed and Spark. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you speaking to us from today? I'm in Denver at Series Fest. And what is Series Fest? Series Fest is one of the only television festivals in the world. It started three years ago, and they've made incredible progress. We partnered with Series Fest last year to help find some great new voices in independent television. And so we're premiering four original pilots and an original series today. That's exciting. Yeah, it's awesome. So can you tell us what is Seed and Spark? Seed and Spark is an entertainment company for everyone, except we really mean it. We're a subscription streaming platform and a crowdfunding platform rolled up into one. And our mission is to increase diversity and inclusion while providing really exceptional entertainment to massively underserved audiences. Excellent. So to get some context on the size of your culture, how many employees and locations do you have now? We are 14 people in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. Okay. So you have HQ in LA and then a bit of a remote team as well. Correct. Yeah, we have two in New York one in Chicago. Oh, and actually we just added a team member in San Francisco who I think knows full well we're very interested in getting him down to LA. <laughs> um, so I guess we're in four cities right now. What is the vibe like at the Seed and Spark HQ in LA? Can you give us like a quick snapshot? So we work out of Impact Hub Los Angeles right now, which is a startup co-working space for impact-focused companies. So one cool thing is we're constantly surrounded by other folks working on impact in totally different spaces, which is really exciting. Can you explain impact for people who don't know? In our case, we're an impact-focused for-profit. So a lot of people will say impact companies are double bottom line companies. I challenge that notion. I would say impact companies do well by doing good. Got it. And that doesn't necessarily imply like B Corp or anything. Nope. We're a C Corp. But we're focused on increasing diversity and inclusion in entertainment because it's the right thing to do and it's about time. And it's also where the biggest business opportunity is because it's where the most underserved audiences are. Yep. Got it. And in terms of when you're all working at the co-work space, what's some of the little stuff that happens in between the work? I think the thing we probably talk the most about is movies and food. So we're in the Arts District in downtown Los Angeles. We're right next to Little Tokyo. We're surrounded by incredible food and ice cream and pie. And there's also a little Airstream trailer uh, with an amazing Italian chef inside, and it's called Bafo. We usually go there because for eight or nine dollars, he'll like craft a gorgeous sandwich for you. So a lot of time we just spend talking about uh, what we're going to get from Bafo at lunchtime. <laughs> um, but the thing I think that really sets this team apart to me is we are for the most part all working filmmakers as well. 
That doesn't mean we're working on Seed and Spark part-time. But a couple of years ago, I said to everyone, it's a requirement of working here that you continue to make space to work on your creative endeavors outside of your job. What started to happen is filmmakers started to work together uh, on their projects outside of work, which creates a much more tightly knit team culture inside of work. Blessing Yen is the co-creator and director of an upcoming film called Sunday, and she's our chief creative officer and our UI UX. And most of the Seed and Spark team worked on that film with her, you know, on a weekend. Very cool. Max is working on a super interesting project outside of work that Blessing is working with him on that. Jerry Maravilla, who's our head of crowdfunding, and I have a writer's group together. So we try to hold each other accountable to continuing to write our movies. The other day, Jerry had a screening for his short film called Desert as a fundraiser for Rain in Pasadena. Our whole team was there. And our intern, Mariah, who's with us from Princeton for the summer, showed up and like helped at the door, you know, And I just, I don't know, that stuff makes my heart explode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, as a musician myself and having worked in the industry, I know how much creatives need to have some kind of outlet for that other side of them. So even if they're working full time on some job, they're always going to have some other thing. Yeah. So the fact that you've kind of cooked that into the culture is pretty special. Yeah. Christina Raya, a director of crowdfunding based in New York, crowdfunded her feature film on Seed and Spark and then basically took Thursday through Sunday for several weeks to shoot it. And we really make an effort to make space for that because the best way we have of developing a really vibrant creator culture on our site is to be a part of it as creators. Yeah, that makes so much sense. But, you know, I think before we go any further toward your mission, you guys are really kicking so much ass right now. Can you share? <laughs> I know because we worked together on the uh, your feature profile on the Backstage Capital website. Yeah. And so I know some of these stats. So can you share a few of the awesome stats about your progress to date? Yeah. So in January, we launched something called 100 Days of Diversity, which at that time was a response to the election, to be perfectly honest. Filmmakers were coming to us and saying, how on earth can I be asking people for money to make my film when I feel like every dollar needs to be going to the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center or Planned Parenthood? And while I deeply appreciate that, we also know that our ability to see ourselves represented on screen and the importance of having screens everywhere filled with actually diverse casts changes our social capacity for empathy. So it's more important now than ever that these stories are getting told. And we really wanted to give filmmakers an incentive to get to work, you know? Yeah. And so we partnered with about 40 organizations and brands to incentivize filmmakers to like get their movies and shows off the ground in the first 100 days of 2017. And diversity is not a notion, it's an action. Mm -hmm. Well said. We greenlit about one project a day for the first 100 days. It was 106 projects in the end that were greenlit during this campaign, 80% of them had women in above the line roles, writer, director, producer, 50% of them, people of color and LGBT, and 35% of the teams were entirely women led. That is so cool. And look, and there were places we didn't do that well. Only 11% of the projects were written by people of color. That's not enough. 
It also made us look internally at our team, which by Silicon Valley standards is incredibly, incredibly diverse, but that should not be anyone's standard. So as we grow, obviously bringing diverse and inclusive perspectives even further into the team really matters to us. In the meantime, what we're doing is going out there and engaging as many stakeholders as we can in the communities that we can't personally represent as part of the team, because as a small team, you never could. So we're not trying to lead in communities that we don't represent. We're trying to build a set of tools we can hand to those community leaders for them to continue to elevate what they're doing. Absolutely. That is so cool. Thank you for doing that. You are a crowdfunding platform in addition to a streaming service. Yep. Mm -hmm. How has it been for people, say, in comparison to like other crowdfunding platforms? Um, I used to feel really self-conscious about talking about this, which maybe is, you know, my sort of like female upbringing to not want to brag about this too much. But uh, data wonk in the film space named Stephen Follows, who's a lovely human, recently published a report that verified we have the highest campaign success rate in film and TV for crowdfunding in the world. Our lifetime campaign success rate is 75%. Although interestingly, since we launched 100 Days of Diversity and then built that into the fabric of our crowdfunding platform, our crowdfunding success rate in 2017 has been 85%. Kickstarters in the film and TV space is between 39 and 42%. Indiegogo's goes unpublished. They will say it's between 30 and 40%. Some independent reviews have said it's closer to 11% for getting fully funded. So how is that possible? Because like, that's such a higher success rate. Is it something you're doing to filter quality or something to attract the right kind of filmmakers? What is it? We just invested really heavily in education. I got in my car in Los Angeles and I drove all the way across the country and all the way back, accompanied for most of it by one of my co-founders, Erica Anderson, who's sort of the foundations for how we built such a high crowdfunding success rate. And we went and developed a workshop called Crowdfunding to Build Independence. Think about it as entrepreneurship 101 and growth hacking for filmmakers. <laughs> you just can't really call it that because that's not what they're trying to do, right? right? So it's really about audience building. And what we're trying to help people understand is how crowdfunding is an opportunity to hone a set of skills, leveraging what you can do as a storyteller to build a direct relationship with your audience that is what makes you actually independent. That's really cool. Before we dive in deeper on your culture and Seed and Sparks values, I noticed online you've had some interesting, varied jobs before becoming a founder. Yeah. You produced theater, you ran restaurants, you studied jazz singing. I did. Tour guided and cooked in Barcelona. Yep. But one thing I saw definitely jumped out at me in relation to this show, which was, were you really a vision and values strategy consultant? <laughs> I was. So my dad was a journalist for 20 years. And then in the early 90s, joined a company in the East Bay called Global Business Network. The company that codified, kind of for the first time, something called Scenarios to Strategy Consulting. He did an engagement with Morgan Stanley, who was a client of Global Business Networks. And he got offered a job at Morgan Stanley in New York. This was a man who was like living on a sailboat in Pier 39 Marina and had long hair. And all of a sudden had to buy a bunch of suits and cut his hair. <laughs> and he sort of originated the internal strategies department at Morgan Stanley and had a lot of time and resources there, obviously, to do some really deep thinking and kind of developed his own methodology. And he left Morgan Stanley and went out on his own and started Best Partners and had more work than he had infrastructure. And because I had been running restaurants and I was really looking for a change, 
I started coming out to New York to help him just really on the management side of things. I got a chance to be in rooms with like the global chief information officers of Deutsche Bank during the financial crisis. Oh, wow. And then over time, was able to do some of the work myself and have run engagements at conferences and for small companies in the film business. The Los Angeles Film Festival let me convene a room full of incredible film brains to produce a white paper on the future of independent film. So it's something I care very much about. It's a family business and it's been the rhetoric at my dinner table since I was young. What would you say are like the, you know, the biggest lessons you learned from that experience? Well, this is the one that everybody talks about, but I think people don't use well enough is the power of yes and. I know it seems sort of small or obvious, but yes and is one very actionable way you can ask everyone in your office space to value what everyone else has to say and then add something. Yes and is from the improv acting world. Is that where it comes from? Yeah, I think so. But I think it was also, I mean, this has been used as a business tool quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's something that I witnessed my dad take into rooms of like investment bankers for whom this was not (laughs) comfortable. And one of the things I think is really important about it is yes, and is part of an inclusive culture. Yes, and says, I might not immediately agree with you, but I have to acknowledge that the thing that you said was valuable. And then I have to figure out what I can add to it as opposed to what I can take away from what you just said, which is what yes, but is. Right. And just to spell it out for people, we're talking about like, someone says something and then someone goes as a response, yes, but and it's like you've negated what the person just said before you, right? Yeah. It's like what what you said was worthless. And now I'm going to tell you what I really think. And when we talk about how to make workplaces comfortable and encouraging for women and people of color and LGBT and people of different abilities who are really used to being shut down or talked over over time. Yes, and is a way to say, I have to listen to what you said. And it's a challenge to add something, Mm -hmm. right? To always be additive. And that's a very positive approach. It sort of requires a certain level of agreed upon optimism, right? <laughs> yeah. That we're going to get somewhere together. Very simple, very, very powerful tool. My dad always really asked people to get very honest about shared values. So you have to create an action plan, right? And if you're going to go somewhere together, if you're going to travel this journey of building a company together, you have to agree on what are the core values from which we will not depart. Mm-hmm that drive our decision-making together, that we can always go back to that act as a compass. It's really important, especially when you're scaling a company quickly and you don't want to be a micromanager, which I hope nobody does, is really about giving everybody the same compass so that you can make decisions based on the shared values from which we as a company will not depart. It's also an easy way to help find the people who are your tribe. Yeah. Right? Because you can say, like, if you share these values, because we're really transparent about them and we understand them as part of our culture, that's great. You will do well here. But if these make you uncomfortable, then it may be a difficult transition. You know, another piece that's really important to me personally is just about acknowledging the whole human. I think the statistic is you spend some phenomenal percentage more time 
with your coworkers than you do with your own family in your lifetime, which is a really sad state of affairs in American workplace culture. But in that case, I don't believe in the separation of professionalism and personal life. I think that's a load of horseshit. You don't like check your humanity at the door when you walk into work. Everything that happens outside of work comes to work with you and vice versa. So I don't want to create a workplace culture that infects somebody's personal life or vice versa. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to be a place where it's safe to be a whole human. And, you know, as women who are like really taught to shut down entire parts of our body in order to be professional, you know, we're mostly women at Seed and Spark. So it's really important for us. Yeah. Yep. And we're going to dive deeper into that when we talk about one of your values. So let's dive into your core values. On your careers page, you list some words that are tied to your culture. Mm-hmm. Are those like your sort of like codified values or are those like um, guiding ideas Those are guiding ideas. I mean, I think empathy, inclusion, and supportive are probably the three most vital, especially in startups where people early on tend to be working on stuff they really care about. It can be a tense or kind of hot environment. And empathy is really important because it asks that everyone sees how much everyone else cares about what they're doing and assumes the best of intentions. And that's why, yes, and is also really important as a part of that, right? Yes, I believe that what you are saying is your expression of how much you care about this, and here's what I would add, or here's the direction I would take this based on my experience. Like that, That's really a part of the empathy and support. The how of how you do it, right? Yeah, for sure. One of your cultural ideas that really, I think, sets you apart and that you are very eloquent about communicating is this idea of being feminist. It couldn't come at a better time. There's a lot of discussion right now in the tech world about gender discrimination. We're talking about, you know, venture capitalists and founders and even the world within companies. So, you know, from leadership to employees at startups. Mm -hmm. So where did this value come from and what does it mean to you, this idea of feminism? Feminism is the radical notion that women are also just people and that men and women should be equal. Equal does not mean the same. We're not the same. You, as hard as you try, will never be able to eat a lot of pizza and build a person like (laughs) I did. I ate a lot of pizza and I built a boy. That is a pretty cool trick. Yeah. It was, uh, it's very exciting. And um, that's one of the many ways in which we are not the same. And in order to be equal, probably have to be treated actually a little differently now and again. The more we focus on creating a workplace that's great for women, the more it's also a great workplace for men who don't feel like they have to be a certain way or check their humanity at the door or not take sick days to tough it out because, you know, the guys in my office don't show up with colds because they know there's moms in the room who don't want to bring that stuff home to their kids. Like we have people with their whole lives acknowledging other people's whole lives. Right. Which is part of, I think, what gives us the patience and perseverance to do something that's really hard. We are trying to boil a big ass ocean at Seed and Spark. (laughs) We're trying to change the way that entertainment does business. That's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of experiments and it's going to take a lot of failures. And the only way we will be able to continue in spite of tremendous adversity is because we're doing it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
The idea of not coming in when you're super sick is actually more toward the value of empathy because if the value of work hard is the more driving one, then people will come in because they feel like they're required to come and work, but you're actually taking the whole team down because now everyone has the flu or whatever you had, you know? Yeah, yeah. We're working in really close quarters. That's just like a real liability. We're a small enough team that if two people go down, that's difficult. It's a double digit percentage of your resources. Yeah. And I am not into try to work through being sick. I want people to go home and drink ginger tea or, you know, whatever the remedy of the day is. That's so refreshing. You hear a lot of founders kind of toe the line of like truthfully wanting their employees to overwork, but not wanting to sound like that, you know? I feel like four times a week I'm sending an email that's like, why are you writing me an email right now? It's 8.45 p.m. And which part of that feels wrong, like in terms of respecting communication boundaries? So I'm totally fine if somebody sends me an email at 8.45. What I don't like is that they're still working at 8.45. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> and I want them to set boundaries about when they want to receive communication. And I'm happy when I see somebody's like, no, my Slack is set to snooze mode. <laughs> and I don't want to hear back from people on the weekends. And I've also told the team, so I have a 10-month-old baby. Congrats. Thank you. I get to work around 9 and I try to leave between 4 and 5 o'clock so that I can get home and do dinner and bedtime. And then I get back online after that. So I'll be catching up on stuff between six and eight or nine o'clock at night because that's what works for me. But I tell them like, if I'm sending you an email at 8.45, it's not because I need to hear back from you. This is shit that I just want to make sure is off my plate until the next morning. Got it. And so they know that. Yeah. And so we just have to communicate about it, like talk to each other. And as far as I can tell, nobody seems to be mad that I'm carving out a schedule that works for me so that I can spend time with my son every day. I don't want to be a person who doesn't see my son Monday through Friday. I work for myself. I'm my own boss <laughs> specifically so that that is not my life. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to do that for myself, I have to figure out how to do it for others and how to like scale it. I do not pretend to have all the answers. So much of this is an experimentation. Before I went on maternity leave, our senior front end developer, her wife had a baby and she was like, how do we deal with leave? And I was like, well, I don't know yet. How do you want to deal with leave? And we just like built something that worked for her and worked for us and made sure that she had enough money. And we were covered from a work perspective. We have another team member who will be going on maternity leave soon. And she's Canadian. So she has much larger expectations for what maternity leave should look like. And so we're working together because the last thing I want to do is lose her as an employee. Right. Mm -hmm. So. I am highly motivated to make it work for her to get what she needs. I retain the institutional knowledge of the company. I retain an incredibly high-performing worker who, frankly, in six months will do what most other people would do in 12 anyway. Yeah, you've hired well. I've been really lucky. It sounds like kind of luck, but you have to attract those people and have a mission that they want to fight for, you know? So some not luck. <laughs> most of the people who work at Seed and Spark pitched me their jobs. Interesting. Our head of product marketing, Katie McBratney, I tweeted, do you want to work at a company where you don't have to check your humanity at the door? And a link to our careers page. And she was the first person who responded. And Max, our chief product officer, saw her resume first and like texted me like, we got to get on this right now. Don't let her go. <laughs> yeah. But Max pitched me his job. He was like, this is what I think you need. And I was like, you're right. I don't know how to do any of the things that you just said. <laughs> um, because he really believed in what we were doing. Caitlin Gold, who is our head of acquisitions, we had a sort of different job posted 
And she's somebody that I've admired for a really long time. And she wrote to me about the job when it was posted. And I was like, are you serious? Like, you Mm. would want to work with us? This is incredible. (laughs) It's been a lot of that along the way, cultivating a community and then people reaching out and saying, hey, you know, this is what I think I could do at this critical moment. And the timing has lined up really serendipitously as well. Um, So in that sense, I have been really lucky. So returning for a second to the idea of this sort of team communication Mm-hmm. You wrote this amazing, very bold article called A Feminist Way to Work, which I'll link to in the show notes. And you shared that one of your guiding principles is to get really real. And you said this. Okay, here we go. This is where I get to be explicit with your quote. <laughs> I want everyone to talk about the shit you're not supposed to talk about. Fuck polite conversation. Talk about your salaries, your periods, miscarriages, your abortions. Silence is tantamount to not asking for help. You're not mincing words there. This is some pretty strong stuff. So tell me more about like where this energy came from and like, what is the sort of root of that? Oh, God, I feel like I would need a long time to try to tease out all (laughs) the things that I think about it because these are still not entirely fully formed ideas. Yeah. First of all, I think our culture of silence around what goes on with women's bodies, especially just starting with periods is part of the lack of equality, right? Periods can be really dramatic and really difficult every month, every month. And I know it's really hard for men to imagine having like level eight to 10 pain happen for two to three days every single month of your life. But there are many, many women for whom that's a reality. I don't want those women to feel like they have to take 900 milligrams of Motrin in order to show up to work on that day. If they want to like do, we all have our own, you know, like some of us like to lie on a cold tile floor with a heating pad, which may sound contradictory, but really works for some of us. (laughs) Whatever works. Whatever works. Like I need for women to be able to kind of like put up the red tent. And that's also part of what gives men permission to say like, I don't feel well, I'm not coming to work today. Right. Or, you know what, I'm having a really rough time because of X, Y, and Z. I need a few more days off. And ask for that kind of help and ask for permission to be human. I wrote this when I was maybe eight weeks pregnant and I had right before that had a miscarriage and was really confronted with the culture of silence around a thing that happens to most women. So one in three pregnancies ends in miscarriage. Nobody tells you that until you have one. We're told not to say that we're pregnant until we're 12 weeks pregnant in case we have a miscarriage. Why? Well, because it makes it awkward for everyone else. Like, what do you say to someone who's just had a miscarriage? And I'm like, fuck that noise. Like, my job is not to take care of your feelings, right? My job is to make sure that I am safe in the world. And if we're all doing that, then we're all coming from a place where we can really start to empathize with each other. But I don't do anyone any favors by shutting myself up because that shuts other people up and shuts other people down. And so I had just been really confronted with this sort of cone of shame and silence around something that is completely normal and ubiquitous. Yeah. It really opened my eyes to all of the ways in which women's bodies are unprofessional. That's your problem. That's your thing. You know, I was thick with pregnancy hormones and pregnant women and new moms often talk about how all of a sudden you start to feel the world's hurt. I felt like I was seeing things with really new eyes and it was making me see both the women and the men that I worked with differently and wanting to really figure out when we talk about bringing your humanity to work, what does that really mean? 
What is that energetic demand? And I would argue it's no higher energetic demand to be present and human at work than to suppress your humanity at work. Yes. You know, what we are is good friends to each other. That's cool. It doesn't mean we all have to want to hang out on weekends. Some of us do, some of us don't. But it does mean that when we come to work, we're glad to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just admirable that you're trying to tackle these things, even if it's a first attempt, because it just doesn't happen. So, and the timing is great because there's just a groundswell of people just being able to talk about this stuff and talk about the ways women are treated in the workplace. Yeah. I wish that converted more into action that actually supported women. Like I'm really disappointed right now to watch the entire venture community, all the men, either pointing fingers at each other, ostracizing each other, or patting each other on the backs for how not like Justin Caldbeck they are. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen very many people stand up and say, I'm a venture capitalist and I support women. So I want to look at the deals of every single one of those women who was sexually harassed by Caldbeck. I want to call a meeting of all of my LPs and partners to say, You don't treat women the same when they walk in the room. You treat them like a bigger business opportunity because it's an undervalued resource. You fucking watch your language when a female entrepreneur is in the room because you know what we learned? You don't know what is right to say or not right to say. And so you should be extra sensitive. I don't hear that right now. It's all about how do the men come out looking? Should we or should we not ostracize Teo as much as, and like is Mazio or Mazio, whatever, who like apparently is untouchable. Do we think he wasn't warned before he walked into that deal about who that guy was? It's all about, was I complicit or was I not complicit? Like, did I reject it soon enough after it was revealed? That shit has been revealed for years and they haven't been rejecting it. I don't think all of the talk about harassment is turning fast enough into action. It's just like more about the men and what are the men doing for each other. Yeah. It's infuriating to me because I don't see it turning into action that affects women. They're still just collateral damage. Yeah. I mean, that's why where Arlen comes into the picture here. Arlen Hamilton, the managing partner at Backstage. Yeah. I mean, she is taking action to invest directly in underrepresented founders. It was the best investment meeting of my life. I walked in and was like so comfortable that we could just talk about my business because I didn't question if you thought I was a real person. I walked into an investment meeting Monday morning. It opened with two of the three guys in the room engaging in just some casual sexism, commenting about somebody they thought was a worthless actress, but who had a spectacular body. And that's how they thought it was okay to start a conversation with me about the movie business. Damn. These are not guys who aren't reading the news. They know what the fuck happened to Justin Caldbeck. And they don't even, there was no acknowledgement in their behavior that anything that they were saying might even be perceived as inappropriate. Mind-blowing. Yeah. And I had a terrible time in that meeting because I couldn't get my feet under me after that. And I'm sorry, but men don't go through that shit. White men don't go through that shit. Founders of color. It's a whole other um, ball of wax. And like, I'm in (laughs) the second most privileged group you can be in. And I'm still having this experience. Thank you for sharing that. It needs to be said. And the only way to push the action side forward is for people just to do it. So I guess this is a call to action on that front. I hope so. So while that stuff is all kind of fucked up, (laughs) this is the most awkward (laughs) transition ever, 
You do have a guiding principle that nothing is fucked. Yes. This one resonated for me because I've totally had hard drives get destroyed and, you know, your entire, you know, recording session just gets nuked. And so that stuff happens with media. Yeah. Why is this sense of hopefulness in the face of setbacks important to you as a team? Because every failure is a learning experience. I'm just much more interested as soon as we make a big mistake or something bad happens to be like, cool, what do we do differently next time? It's the most kind of pregnant moment that can give birth to the greatest discoveries. So they are always opportunities if you don't spend a bunch of time finger pointing, right? I think you can destroy a culture really quickly by creating a sense that something might be the catastrophic end because then people will just be trying to absolve themselves from blame and responsibility. I'd much rather have a culture where people say, I blew it and let me think hard about what I could have done better there and this is what we'll do next time so that it's not terrifying to do something wrong. We celebrate 100 days of diversity as a massive success, but then we dug into the data and we're like, we had a real failure on the writer's front. We really need to look at how we encourage more writers of color to use digital platforms to get their work made. And is it that they don't know about us? Is it that they don't feel comfortable using us? Is it that they feel like they're in communities that can't take advantage of crowdfunding? We don't know, but we better find out. Right. Right. And so it was just an opportunity for us to figure out the next thing we need to focus our attention on. And so, yeah, I just, I don't want to be afraid of messing up. Yeah. I do it all the time. So I would really, I'd really be in a bad position. We all do. Yeah. If, yeah. Uh, if every time I messed up, it just was the end of the world. That's part of that humanity. I mean, you look at children, you can't learn anything without making mistakes. So it's clearly part of the learning process, right? Right. I mean, look, that's a great analogy, right? They tell you all the time that if your kid falls down, if you react in a really sort of like scared, something must be wrong kind of a way, they'll cry because they think, oh no, I'm scared and something must be wrong. They fall down and you're like, how'd that go? Like, (laughs) are you going to get up? Are you cool? They'll just get up. They're incredibly resilient. And we actually retain that capacity as adults. Yeah, totally. Well, it's like learned behavior and part of cultural fabric. You don't realize it. It looks invisible for the most part, you know? Right. Tell me this, like, what was a recent win you had as a team at Seed and Spark and how did you celebrate? Gosh, this week has been a huge win for us. On Tuesday, we launched our Apple TV and Roku apps. Yesterday, we announced a nationwide partnership where filmmakers can crowdfund their way to getting the Duplass brothers to executive produce their film. And who are the Duplass brothers? The Duplass brothers are the filmmakers behind shows like Togetherness. They have a new show coming out called Room 104 on HBO. They've made 20 feature films. Oh, wow. They have like standing deals with Netflix and HBO, which is something you can like barely do. (laughs) Right. The way that they did it is that they were just always making stuff. And um, they're white guys and they make stuff mostly about white people. And they realized that they really wanted to expand the inclusiveness of the storytellers that they could empower, partially starting with executive producing an incredible film called Tangerine. They know they can't speak authentically with any other voice than their own. So they're using their position to elevate other storytellers. I sought them out because I knew that they were up to this. And then they chose Seed and Spark to work with. They did. They chose Seed and Spark, which is really cool. IndieWire called it a match made in indie film heaven, which <laughs> like warmed my heart beyond belief. And then today we'll be announcing 
the winner of a year-long campaign to find the next great voice in independent television while I'm here in Denver at Series Fest. And then it's going to be 4th of July weekend. And then when we get back, we're going to have a happy hour together because (laughs) we've all been scattered and traveling. And it's been an uncommonly heavy workload for all of us to get this out the door. And everybody's been working really, really hard. So one of the ways that we're going to celebrate is a four-day weekend. The next way we'll celebrate is to all go out and just say nice things to each other and drink some beers. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, we're, our office is upstairs from a really cool brewery. So that works out really well. This location sounds pretty special. Pretty sweet. Have you been to Salt and Straw Ice Cream? Because if you haven't, no. holy smokes. All right, I'm coming. Let's do it. Great. Can't wait. <laughs> Emily, it's so wonderful what your team is doing to bring some long overdue diversity to the entertainment industry. Thank you. You're just blowing right past them and showing them what the future can be. And just also how you're empowering your team to grow creatively and professionally while doing that. For those of us who want to look into supporting through crowdfunding or just watching some fresh films and shows, Mm -hmm. where do we go to check that out and follow along? I mean, the best thing to do, I think, is to go to seedandspark.com and subscribe for $8.99 a month. You get to do both. So you get unlimited access to our streaming library, which you can access online, Apple TV and Roku. And we contribute a portion of our subscriber revenue each month to new and exciting crowdfunding projects based on how our subscribers vote. So we get a two for one there. So clever. That is so cool that you have this sort of two-sided platform going on because it just leads to better results for everyone. So far, so good. And for those who your culture really resonated with when we talked about it today and who are interested in potentially joining your adventure, are you currently hiring? We're currently hiring a senior PHP and Laravel developer. Mm -hmm. We are always looking for really great product marketing interns. And if you have experience in media making, you can always reach out to us. We often have paid internships available for people who are interested in what we do. Of course you do, because you care about the whole human. Uh, Not eating is not a good recipe for a a whole human. (laughs) Not eating is not part of our plan. I started this podcast by telling you how much we care about eating. Yes, exactly. It all comes back around to food when you live in LA. Exactly. Where can we follow you on Twitter and all that good stuff? I'm at Emily Best on most of the platforms or eBest in the West on Instagram, although that is only pictures of my fat baby. Oh, I got to follow that one. (laughs) Rear dose of cuteness for the day. Yes. And how about Seed and Spark? at Seed and Spark everywhere you can find us. Excellent. So easy. Awesome. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this amazing podcast. It's time now to take action. Share your favorite quotes from this episode on Twitter. Talk about it with your coworkers. If you think Emily's message is important, please help spread the word. You can find show notes at backstagecapital.com slash mission and values. Let us know what you think of the show. I'm at Brian Landers on Twitter. That's B-R-Y-A-N-L-A-N-D-E-R-S. And you can also email greenroom at backstagecapital.com. The theme music is by Shane Ensley. You can hear more at kneebody.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time on Mission and Values. <laughs>